In recent months, the spotlight has again fallen on the support for people with disabilities after abuse accusations against three residential support providers. A similar situation existed seven years ago. This Radio New Zealand Insight asks what can be done to prevent such abuse happening again. Sarah will be 21 this year in July and she's got a diagnosis of Rett syndrome variant in autism. Um, she was born in the UK and diagnosed at 11 months of age. As Sarah plays with a rattle in her Palmerston North home, her mother, Wendy Brinkley, describes her fear about finding her daughter the right support when she leaves special education. I have great concerns about my daughter in the future. She's non-verbal, she's mobile, she can be behaviourally um, quite challenging and she has a low pain threshold and has been hurt in the past and it has been unreported till we've noted injuries. So I do have concerns and would be very particular about where she went. I would have to feel great confidence in their level of care. Recent revelations about abuse involving three different support providers have alarmed families and advocates. Seven years ago, similar accusations of mistreatment and neglect were made against two residential providers, prompting a select committee inquiry. This time, the Health Minister, Tony Rahl, has announced a three-person consumer review. But what will change? I'm Philippa Tolley, and this insight considers if the right questions are being asked and how reassured people with disabilities and their families feel about the support available. Sarah was sent here to Kimberley at the age of nine for respite care when no other place would take her. It finally shut in 2006 and was the last large institutional facility to shut down. Now the largely disused site is home to rather dilapidated institutional units, boarded up windows, rusting iron roofs. The care facilities here have come to an end, but what is happening elsewhere? I'm fortunate to have individualised funding so I find young people more appropriate to Sarah's age who I employ, um, train up to work with her and can work nice flexible hours around her and on top of that I'm very fortunate in having um, weekend respite for her. While the move from big institutions such as Kimberley just outside Levin to smaller residential living and individualised care has made a huge improvement in the lives of many of those with a disability, it hasn't stopped abuse. The Ministry of Health says staff at a Māori Intellectual Disability Care Service are facing criminal charges after allegations of assault and abuse. A disability advocate is calling for an independent investigation of the Ministry of Health's role in the long-term abuse of intellectually disabled residents at a residential home. Documents released under the Official Information Act this week show residents at Parklands... A the Health and Disability Parks. Commissioner says a caregiver who dragged an intellectually impaired woman along the floor in a residential care facility acted unacceptably. Anthony Hill has released a report on the incident at the Mary Moody Family Trust Board facility in Christchurch. In Terupu Turima Omanako now has an external monitor, but information from the Minister of Health shows four other providers are currently categorised as high risk following complaints. The allegations include sexual abuse involving a client and another resident and an inappropriate relationship with a staff member, a provider with a history of so called client capture children not accessing education and staying in the service until 21, then being moved straight into an adult service. 
A complaint from a staff member being investigated by the Department of Labour, who was injured by a client with challenging behaviour. The Ministry of Health says more incidents are likely to emerge as abuse is talked about more openly, but it says it's working closely with the providers at risk while they are evaluated. However, there are no individual inquiries into incidents which occurred at Terupu, Torima, Omanako, Parklands or the Mary Moody Trust. Instead, the Minister of Health, Tony Ryle, decided the best option was an independent review of the evaluation, monitoring and complaints processes in the Ministry of Health. While it might be interesting to uh, and informative in some ways to have a full in-depth investigation to two or three individual cases, I think it is of greater benefit to look at the system as a whole. As Minister of Health, one of the assurances you want to give the residents and their families is that they are getting good quality, reliable, accountable services that meet their needs. And one way that I can assure myself on that is to have this review so that any shortcomings can be identified and we can work with the Ministry to improve them. But a number of people and organisations believe mistreatment is more widespread than is acknowledged. Among them is the Justice Action Group, an advocacy service for people with intellectual disabilities. A founding member of the group, Colin Bergering, thinks the horrific cases reported recently are the tip of the iceberg. And under that, you'll find bullying and emotional abuse, neglect, um, unnecessary controls and basic life wasting. And that happens all the time. Colin Bergering doesn't have any faith the minister's review will improve anything. That's the same paint over rust. You have to change the whole thing properly. What... What you get in there from the Ministry of Health is um, excuses and cover-up after. But the National Health Board's Director of Purchasing Services, Jill Lane, says the hallmark of good health services is always continuous quality improvement and the latest check will help ensure providers deliver the best care possible. I think the, the purpose of the review is very much looking at what the Ministry's actions are in terms of how does the Ministry respond uh, to... Uh, to these issues, um, is our, uh, are our responses proportionate enough? SAMS is an organisation involved in a type of check called developmental evaluation. SAMS chairperson is psychologist Dr Aloma Parker. She's sceptical about some existing monitoring and what reviewing it will achieve. If we can move more towards developmental evaluation which looks at the quality of service that people receive rather than um, the tick box approach which I think if you set up minimum standards for services and then measure them against them then what you're going to get is minimum standards because that's what people are funded to provide. But another member of SAM's board, Mike Gourley, who is a past president of the Disabled Persons Assembly and lives with a disability himself, feels providers are improving the way they operate. People understand now better, I think, what it is they want to be doing when they set up services. What is it all about? Who's it for? Whose interests should it be serving? That, I think, is much better now than it was. Hannah's 19. She has autism. She doesn't talk. She's unable to be safe or keep yourself safe um, or, you know, make choices or she's fairly disabled in her autism. Fielding resident Nikki Carmichael's daughter Hannah needs round-the-clock help. Hannah doesn't sleep much. She's, she's, um, she'd sleep probably maybe four hours a night that you could guarantee, if three to four hours. Um, oh, in saying that, we have nights where she doesn't sleep at all, so she'll be up um, 
three days. She can go three days without having a sleep. So um, she can be... Who well, she is. She's lively. She has ADHD as well. Um, and so she's got very little attention span. It's only about three seconds. Um, so, yeah, most nights she'd be up. Nikki Carmichael says while recent abuse has happened in group living environments, mistreatment can happen at home as well. If you're mad at somebody, if you're a carer and you're working with someone like Hannah and they're, they're frustrating heck out of you, um, you know, by denying them food, drink, um, locking them in a room, um, not toileting them regularly, there's all sorts of ways. Yeah, Some, I mean, I'm not saying all are intentional, but um, certainly I think if you're a carer working with someone like Hannah or people like Hannah, you have to be very, very tolerant and, and often um, some service providers aren't picking the best person or you know, a suitable person for that job. When it comes to residential supported living, the most recent model is for a group of people with disabilities to live in the same house as flatmates. John Foreman's children have been in such an arrangement for more than a decade. Timothy and Holly are twins, they're age 38 and they both have a very rare genetic disease which leads to intellectual disability and a lot of other physical health problems as well. They've been living in supported housing for I think it's about uh, 18 years for Timothy and about 15 years for Holly. John Foreman describes the people who have helped his children over the years as wonderful, but the group's style of living has its problems. For it to be financially viable, there will be an average of about four or five disabled adults living in a, a large home with support staff. Usually that is one person there all of the time and a second staff member there for some of the time, which is the busy times. If most of the time, say on a weekend, there is just one staff member present, and when most of the people who live there cannot be left on their own without some degree of support and supervision, it's either everyone stays at home or everyone goes out <laughs> together and there are, there's no in-between situation. Options for more individualised living arrangements are being introduced. But for individuals with high and complex needs, John Foreman would like to see fewer people living together supported by one worker, rather than more staff working with a bigger group. That idea is supported by the service provider's umbrella group, the Disability Support Network. The network's chief executive, Claire Teague, believes an alternative is needed to the present concept of several people who require significant support living together. In some of these instances there have been in the media uh, where the system really doesn't work for anybody. It's not working for the people that are being supported and it's not working for the workforce. Recent instances um, in the secure type of facility where you're putting individuals with very challenging behaviours, uh, living with other people with really challenging behaviours and the result is you've got a house of very challenging behaviours, um, which is, is, leads to some difficulty. So that model of actually putting people into a group home in that circumstances is one that needs to be questioned. This change could well have funding implications and Claire Teague says her sector is already under-resourced and has raised funding with the Health Ministry. I think disability has often been the poor cousin 
in this sector. There's a lot of constraint. The support workers are generally not very well paid. I mean, you're talking about a range of somewhere between minimum wage and about, you know, maybe $17 an hour. Seven years ago, Insight investigated similar issues when maltreatment allegations surfaced at two major providers. Reaction to complaints and a system of audits formed the basis of the government's monitoring and checking system on care providers. Two years later, in 2008, the allegations of poor treatment and financial irregularities prompted a select committee inquiry into service provision arrangements, monitoring and staff issues. The Labour Party's health spokesperson, Annette King, says the inquiry made very good recommendations to little avail. None of that work, or very little of that work, was ever picked up and carried on. And so almost six years later, we're still getting reports of some horrendous things happening in the disability sector. John Foreman says, as in any walk of life, individuals may behave unethically, but when they do, it needs to be tackled. Now, our great wish as parents is that these are the absolutely minimised to circumstances which are not typical. It is extremely rare, in my view, to find people who are just callous, careless, corrupt or indifferent to the needs and interests of the people that they support. But when it does occur, it seems to be a very serious problem, which surprisingly is hard to root out. Colin Bergering of the Justice Action Group wants to know why providers maltreating their clients are not weeded out sooner. There are these people who abuse people. I mean, you have this probably quite small group, but they are known to many, many people in the organisation. Lots of people know what's going on. Many of the managers know what's going on. They don't do anything about it because it might affect their funding. They may get told off by the ministry. So the ministry doesn't want to hear about it, but if they do hear about it, they'll have to do something about it, which is pretty well Parkland, isn't it? Parklands was a home for people with intellectual disabilities south of Auckland. It was shut down last September. Ministry of Health audits revealed crowded, dirty conditions, lack of food, neglect, untrained staff, no meaningful activities for residents, and one resident, a teenage boy who couldn't talk, was left in a paddock to eat grass. The first complaints about Parklands came in a decade ago, and what many find difficult to understand is why the situation was allowed to continue. The Health and Disability Commissioner, Anthony Hill, is worried by investigations that just skim the surface. So it does concern me when I see in a case that a complaint or a series of complaints have in fact been made either to a provider or to an agency, and a and a first blush look was taken, or perhaps a prima facie look was taken, and it seems okay, and then the process stops. Whereas had those information sets been pushed a little harder, had further inquiry been made, had people been supported to, to really test and to talk about the information, it may well be that a different result would have been obtained because the truth would have been accessed. Anthony Hill says every year disability sector complaints make up about 8 to 10 per cent of all grievances to his office. The most recent figures show that in 2011-12 there were about 160 such grievances. Some people are kind and do things that help you and some people can do things that will hurt you. The Health and Disability Commissioner's Advocacy Service not only visits supported residents, but also informs them of their rights, including making complaints.
But despite that, the number of complaints is still not rising, and Mr Hill regards that as worrying. I'm in the business where complaints going up will be seen as a really good thing. And there is a reason for that, because what it says is, if there is an issue, we're going to talk about it. And we need to be transparent. Issues need to be named and they need to be dealt with. But there are reasons why the complaint numbers are not going up, and a critical reason is folk need to feel safe complaining. So we're dealing with a vulnerable population in some of these residential homes in particular. Those folk need to feel safe, and they need to feel safe tomorrow. So if they're going to complain today, they need to be confident there aren't going to be retributions tomorrow. The Health Ministry's Jill Lane also wants an accessible and transparent system and is worried if people feel unable to complain. It's really important that people feel comfortable, feel at ease, are able to and are supported to raise issues. And that's something that we're doing through this review process is to make sure that our process enable that to occur because it's really very important for us, for the most vulnerable people, to have their voices heard. Anthony Hill is optimistic that change and improvements can happen if people are prepared to identify poor treatment and abuse, but he believes there also needs to be action and consequences when such problems occur. With a friend and gave us a cup, which has got a rather neat quotation on it. It says, normal is a setting on a washing machine. Erica doesn't want her real name used. She has muscular dystrophy and is happy in the care home she now lives in. But in a previous residence, she felt let down by the support for both her daily life and the complaint process. One night, Erica needed assistance, but her calls went unanswered. I kept ringing till about 5am and out of sheer desperation, I rang a friend who lived about 10 minutes drive away and... Um, when my friend arrived at the door and rang the doorbell, there was no action for a long time. And then a very sleepy carer appeared, and it would seem that they had probably fallen asleep watching a, a video or something. I proceeded to write a lengthy letter to the management. One of those in particular, after that, um, made my life quite difficult. Nikki Carmichael has made several complaints about the services for her daughter Hannah and has taken matters into her own hands to ensure Hannah's safety. Her behaviour deteriorated and she appeared to be quite afraid of, of a caregiver. Um, so as a result of that, we put in security cameras. It was kind of a bit of a battle really to find out whether that could be done or not and we had long conversations with the Privacy Commission. And so, yeah, we run security cameras in, in some of the main areas just to make sure that Hannah's safe. Have you ever had caregivers that maybe haven't treated Hannah the best? Oh, yeah, we have. Yeah, quite a few. We've had caregivers who have pushed her around and, and hit her We've had that. We've had um, screamers, and again, like again, often it's the neighbours who will alert me. They'll say, "Gosh, you know, who was at your house?" Because they were really, really screaming. While there is a commitment to improving the complaint system and making it more acceptable to express dissatisfaction, the issue of staffing seems less straightforward. The 2008 Select Committee's report recommended the government establish a strategy to improve training pay and working conditions and provide a structured career path for those caring for the disabled. 
typically wages of 15 perhaps $16 an hour for most staff. Now, that's an enormously stressfully low income to try and support yourself, let alone to come into work every day and work with people who are vulnerable, who are in challenging environments. So Alistair Duncan is an advocate with the Service and Food Workers Union. He believes the industry takes staff for granted and would like to see more recognition of the skills they need. One, that we need mandatory training and support and qualifications, and secondly, that we need staff levels that are set and agreed. And we get pushback. We get pushback because employers say they're not funded for that. Um, and we say that's not good enough. If you're going to be providing a service to vulnerable people, then you need to be able to measure the quality of that. And this shouldn't be an argument between us. We also think that this is an unregulated sector simply because the state has not understood the value of the sector. Jenny is a support worker in Gisborne. A qualified enrolled nurse, she admits being surprised by the lack of respect and acknowledgement disability support carers get. Nurses have a nursing council and there's certain things that you, you can lose your registration if you do something wrong. Things like that. With caregivers, it's a little bit different. There's not the same sort of disciplinary action. If they do something wrong, you know, maybe there should be a little bit more of a structure there. The Public Service Association represents four to 5,000 people working in the sector. A PSA Assistant Secretary, Carrie Davies, says the union has called on successive governments to properly invest in the workforce. Ms Davies says a job evaluation found disability support jobs require skills on par with therapy assistants working for district health boards and prison officers. This work demands a high level of skills. It's a very complex job. It's a very responsible job. And you can't rely on a casualised, low-paid workforce to do that. You've actually got to put some time and energy and real resourcing into properly funding the sector so we ensure that the right people are, are employed and then are properly supported throughout their employment to develop the appropriate skills for the different needs of the different people needing support. The Ministry of Health's Jill Lane says employers take into account such things as life experience when hiring staff and allocating work, but it's the management's job to ensure staff are properly supported. Well, the organisations and the providers, whether they be large or small, um, they have the supervision from the managers, uh, from the senior staff in, in the organisation, and it's the senior staff that are supporting people in what can be difficult situations. And so it's not only the staff that are providing the direct care to the people, which is really important, but it's the supervision of those staff and the management of those staff and the governance of, of the organisations. So it's at every level that we have expectations in terms of what is the standard of care, what is the quality that is required, and we expect the organisation to take that responsibility to look at it. The Disability Support Network's Chief Executive, Claire Teague, doesn't favour compulsory staffing and training requirements to ensure the safety of both carers and their charges. Ms Teague says such requirements exist in education and childcare, but at current funding levels it's just not possible in the disabled sector. I've talked to providers and said, you know, how on earth do you get people to do these jobs? You need the patience of a saint sometimes for people to deal effectively and efficiently in the, with people with challenging behaviours. Um, and 
they, they report back to me, actually, these people are not there for the money. They're there because they feel that they're making a huge difference for somebody's lives. So um, in many ways, we're leveraging on the goodwill of good people to work in this sector. Claire Teague says a review of staff qualifications is now being carried out by Career Force, the sector's government-funded industry training organisation. But Stephen, a union delegate and support coordinator in Christchurch, is also worried about the impact of funding restraints. All sorts of companies and everybody's coming out of the woodwork and they're all starting to bid for these contracts. And I'm starting to see um, people are undercutting other people, undercutting other people, undercutting other people. And as the the government, I see them going out, they're out there shopping for people who are going to be able to deliver the kind of services in the, the places that they need. They're looking for the best deal. And unfortunately, it seems to me that the best deal is the cheapest one. Wendy Brinkley has discovered that training is not always adequate, even with basic safety. Her daughter Sarah was poisoned when she ate toxic plants while being supervised in the garden and burnt while being bathed. Unfortunately, there have been incidences with agency care in my own home with my daughter, and she has had poisonings as a result of um, staff not adequately trained, and she has had burns from a staff member running hot water directly into a bath rather than the cold first. Disability advocate Colin Bergering also discovered inadequate training. We work with a lot of people who have come under the Intellectual Disability Compulsory Care and Rehabilitation Act, And many of those people require a great deal of support and they have often some quite difficult behaviours. And so staff that work with that group of people should probably have the highest level of training. But right now, services probably provide three, four or five days at the beginning and maybe in-house training in an ad hoc manner. And that simply isn't enough. And as all of them would need basic values-based training, and they don't do that at all. Aloma Parker from SAMS backs value-based training. It gives them the perspective of thinking of how to solve problems from a client perspective, so that they are examining their own values in terms of the extent to which they may have prejudices about disabilities to the extent that they believe that certain people can't do certain things, to a more enabling kind of concept of helping people to do what they can do to the best of their potential. For Wendy Brinkley and Nikki Carmichael, the struggle to find suitable support for their daughters continues as both children come to the end of their time in education. While both are determined to get what they see as a suitable result, neither is confident of finding a solution where their girls will be safe and engaged. The Health Minister, Tony Ryle, says despite the government putting $1.1 billion into the disability area, it's difficult to eradicate poor treatment. I don't think any minister will promise that there'll never be an episode of someone being mistreated because this is a business that involves humans at all sides of the equation. So we can't give a guarantee that nothing will ever happen. What we can give is an assurance is that we've got systems that mitigate against anything happening. Parent John Foreman believes that change could take decades and will be resisted by governments and officials worried by the cost implications. While we can sort of take the, I guess, the positive and optimistic slant that um, 
that most of the time most things are good for most people, it is also that's also a bit fatalistic about well, given the constraints and uh, and so on. But the other view is, is this as good as it gets? And I think the demand is that for a lot of people it needs to change. And these sorts of problems highlight why change is so important. Tony Ryle says when the review he ordered is completed, he will consider the recommendations he thinks are necessary and, as he puts it, stack up. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Sally Round with technical production by Jeremy Veal.